morning. Is that on? Okay. Well, my name is Brad Poston, and uh, for those of you who don't know me, and it is my joy uh, to be with you this morning and to be able to share the word of the Lord with you. So let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll we'll dive in. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, uh, that you are a God who rescues sinners and uses them uh, for your glory and for your kingdom's purposes. So I pray, Father, you refresh and encourage our hearts that we would see you afresh today and that we would repent and uh, hear and obey Jesus. Would you do that? In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm really excited to be able to be here with you this morning. And uh, this passage really just ministered a lot to me. Uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm just preaching to myself, um, and so uh, it's kind of funny looking at you guys. I feel like I should just turn the podium around and, and just speak to myself here. But um, this is a great passage in which, if I didn't have like a title for it, but if I was to put a, kind of a theme or a title over this passage, the banner of it all would be how God graciously and sovereignly rescues his people for mission in spite of themselves. That's kind of the theme uh, that we're going to see here in Genesis as we continue to walk through the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis uh, chapter 28. Genesis 28, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 10 through 22, looking at the last half of the chapter. And as we're looking at this chapter, just to kind of set this up a little bit, um, just to ask some questions to kind of set the stage here. Have you ever been in a situation where you wonder where God is? Uh, maybe you're in the midst of some difficulty. Maybe it's relational or emotional or financial. Uh, maybe it's a physical problem, and you're just wondering, where is the Lord in all of this? And it's even uh, harder when we're in a situation that's difficult because of our sin. We've done something wrong, and we've known it, and we're suffering the consequences from it, and we might wonder, where is the Lord? You know, Is he still at work here? Uh, might he leave us? Have we gone too far? Do we find ourselves maybe trying to strike a deal with God, right? Saying, uh, God, if, uh, if, you'll, if you'll do this, if you'll rescue me out of this situation, then I will worship you, I'll serve you, I'll do what you want me to do. Um, I know I find myself uh, from time to time in those places and ask those questions, but God reminds us that, that he is present, he is at work, and that's part of what he communicates through the passage that we're looking at today is that God is there to rescue his people uh, even when they're in the midst of difficulty. So let's look at the text and uh, draw some observations. So Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. So Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. And he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching heaven, and God's angels were going up and down on it. And Yahweh was standing there beside him, saying, I am Yahweh, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land that you are now sleeping on. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring." Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his, Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. 
Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all that you give me. So to understand uh, what's going on in this passage, we have to start by just reminding uh, what uh, Dr. Davril preached last week. Uh, re- recently, we saw last week that Jacob has deceived uh, his family in order to receive the blessing uh, of the Lord. And, and Dr. Darville did such a great job uh, walking us through that, that passage. And we saw in this situation that nobody was doing what was right. Um, Isaac intended to bless Esau, even though God had already revealed that his intention was for Jacob to carry the blessing. We saw that Rebekah, as well as Jacob, uh, are going to try to scheme and, and deceive in order to accomplish uh, getting the blessing in a sinful manner. Um, we see um, um, Esau, of course, um, despising the spiritual good of the blessing. He's only interested in the material benefits. Nobody is doing what is right. Everybody is is engaged in various forms of sin. The family is dysfunctional. There's brokenness. There's deception. And at the end of it all, um, after Jacob has swindled his brother and his father, um, the text tells us that Esau wanted to kill him. Um, the, the dysfunction in this family was so bad that Jacob really was in fear of his life. And so once more, Rebecca, uh, she concocts a scheme to try to get Jacob out of town uh, so that he won't be hurt by his brother Esau. So we find Jacob here in verse 10 uh, on the run. He's a fugitive. Uh, he's running uh, for his life. Uh, he is going uh, to try to, to go and, and take a wife from among his family, but he's also running away from, from the consequences of his sin and the problems that he's at. And as we see Jacob here, he's in a, he's in a really tough spot. Um, you know, the, the text says later um, when he comes back uh, to Bethel um, after some time that, that he crossed over the Jordan with just the staff in his hand. Um, we get the impression here that this is not a well-prepared journey, um, that he's just kind of getting out of Dodge, right? Um, when you compare this, this journey to go and find a wife with what happened when Abraham sent his servant to, to go find Rebekah, it's a very different picture. Um, you know, when, when Rebecca, uh, or when Abraham's servant went to go find Rebecca, uh, he brought a caravan. They had lots of supplies. They had gifts to give. Um, Jacob here, um, you know, he, he's leaving with his father's blessing. Isaac does uh, commission him to go and find a wife. But you don't get the impression that he's going with a caravan. You don't get the impression that he has a lot of wealth, a lot of supplies. You get the impression that he's just on the run as he's fleeing for his life. So he's in a pretty hard spot. Um, and we're about to see that God is going to do a gracious work in Jacob's life. But before we look at the grace of God, I do want to point out that, that although God is gracious to sovereignly work in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, and in spite of our mistakes to accomplish his purposes, he does allow us sometimes to taste some of the consequences of our choices as part of his fatherly discipline. Um, Hebrews tells us, uh, in Hebrews, um, uh, 12.6, that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and punishes every son that he receives. So we are going to see that God is going to rescue Jacob and that God is going to use Jacob in spite of his sin and in his rebellion. 
but Jacob's still going to have to taste some of the difficulty of being a fugitive and an exile and, and kind of having to deal with some of the material discomfort of being uh, in, in the situation that he finds himself in. So here's Jacob, and, and it's kind of the idea here is he's in a place where he's exhausted emotionally, uh, mentally, physically. He's got nothing, and he sees a rock, and he decides this is the goodest place as any to, to spend the night. Um, I don't know whether he laid on the rock or the rock was just there at his head, but um, he is literally at rock bottom, right? Um, I've been camping a few times before in my life, and I don't ever remember being in a situation where I was so just through with it that I just saw a rock and was like, yeah, there's a good place, right? Um, and so Jacob just lays on the ground, he collapses, and he has this vision. And so this vision is just absolutely chalk-filled with gospel purpose and gospel promise. And I think it's important to note as we look, before we look at the vision and before we look at this dream that Jacob has, that Jacob did not choose God. God chose Jacob. There's no mention in the text of Jacob calling on the name of the Lord. There's no mention of him seeking after God, calling on the Lord for help. None of that, right? In fact, in the previous chapter, uh, when he is deceiving uh, his father, Isaac, to receive the blessing, he says, the Lord, your God, is the one who helped me accomplish this. At this point, there hasn't been, you know, God has not communicated to Jacob at this point before. Um, and there's no indication that he actually is looking on the Lord as being his God. And I think we're going to actually see Jacob get saved here in this text today. But at this point, he's not looking for the Lord. He's not calling on the Lord. He's not, he's just, he's just running away. And God finds him and chooses him in this spot. And I think this is such a, a glorious truth because this highlights how God rescues us. We are all like Jacob. We're all uh, sinful. We're all running on our own course, running away from the Lord. And, and we don't have to get our life together before God comes to us. He comes out and he rescues us where we're at. He goes out and he finds us even when we're not looking for him. Um, this is the display of God's sovereign grace. In fact, this will later be illustrated. Uh, the Bible talks about this very moment when he talks uh, in Romans 9, 11 through 16. It talks about how God uh, chose uh, Jacob. And so let me just read that really quickly to kind of frame the vision that he's about to receive. So this is in Romans 9, 11 through 16, and I'm going to flip back to Genesis in just a second. So it says... Um, Talking about uh, Sarah, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told the older, in this case Esau, will serve the younger, uh, Jacob. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So we see there's nothing that Jacob has brought to the table here to cause God to show up and to, to give him this vision and to give him this promise. This is only because of his grace. It is only because of Christ that God shows up in Jacob's life um, at this point. And it's the same with all of us, right? That there's nothing we bring to the table. No, it's not our, our family. It's not our background. It's not our choice. We are, we are saved. We are redeemed. We are rescued because we serve a gracious God who chooses to love his people and to save them from themselves. And thanks be to God that he doesn't wait for us to get our act together first. So let's uh, look at how God is going to display the gospel in Jacob's life. Let's look again at the vision in verses 12 through 15. 
So Jacob's dreaming, and it says, A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching heaven, and God's angels were going up and down on it. And Yahweh was standing there beside him, saying, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. And I will give you and your offspring the land that you are now sleeping on, and your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So we see several uh, features here of the dream. There's kind of this um, natural thematic um, uh, progression. So the first thing we see is we see there's this stairway or this ladder that's reaching from earth to heaven. And we don't have a whole lot of details about what this thing looks like. Um, Some commentators speculate it might have looked like a ziggurat. We don't know. It could have been a ladder. It could have been an escalator. We have no idea, right? It's There's some kind of bridge or ladder or stairway or something that's connecting earth and heaven. That's the first thing that Jacob sees in his vision. And then his gaze is lifted up, and he sees on this ladder or this stairway, there are angels coming to and fro from heaven to earth, uh, going back and forth, engaged on their spiritual commerce, the, the missions that the Lord has for them. And then the climax of the vision is God himself, that Yahweh is the third element in, in the ladder here. And one of the things that I found pretty cool um, is that the, there's two different ways to apparently translate um, where God's position is. Now, I'm going to just stay straight out. I am not a language expert. Um, I, I really don't know Greek or Hebrew or anything like this. I don't know what the word is in the original language uh, in Hebrew uh, that was translated here, but I know that that I was looking at a couple different translations, and some translations say that God was above the ladder of the stairway, and some say that he's beside Jacob, and there's always a note that says it could be translated the other way. So um, so I think at the end of the day, maybe it's both, and it doesn't matter, and let me explain why. Because when we're looking at this ladder, we might not know what the ladder exactly looked like, but we do know what the ladder is supposed to be, and that is Christ himself. Later on in the Gospel of John, when uh, Jesus is calling his disciples. Um, he has this encounter with a disciple named uh, Nathaniel, and he and he calls Nathaniel, and uh, Nathaniel agrees to follow after Christ and come after Christ as an apostle. and And Jesus tells Nathaniel, he said, "You know, do you believe because I saw you under the olive tree? I tell you the truth that you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man." So Jesus talking to Nathaniel in the New Testament is pointing to this vision that he's given to Jacob as a symbol that's really about himself, right? That he is the ladder. He is the bridge that connects us to God. He is the bridge that connects heaven to earth. And so when we're looking at this preposition and we're saying, is is God above the ladder or is he beside the ladder? Yes, both, right? Because God is our father in heaven, right? He is he is the Lord, the sovereign Lord of the whole universe, and so he is reigning from the heavens. But but in Christ, because Christ died on the cross and because he became the means by which we can access the Father, God's not just up in heaven, he's also beside us, right? He's right there with us. So maybe that's why there's some ambiguity on how this is translated, because both are true. God is both above us in heaven, and he's beside us in Christ. And we see that that is accomplished because of Jesus, because Jesus is the ladder that bridges the gap between sinful man and holy God. So we see that there's already some some gospel coming through here, and then we see that gospel reaffirms in the blessing that God gives to Jacob. 
we see that God essentially ratifies and says the same thing to Jacob that we've seen so far in the promise of the covenant that he made with Abraham, which really goes all the way back to the promise of a seed in Genesis 3 after man's rebellion, that there's going to be a seed that's going to come from from humanity through whom God is going to raise up someone to crush uh, the serpent and crush the rebellion. And we know this is talking about Christ. And we see that reiterated because I know that there's a lot of elements here in the blessing, you know, the, the promise of a nation, the promise of land. But what always strikes me is the promise that through this family and through this land and this people, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And that's ultimately about Christ, right? It's only, it's only in Christ and that Christ will one day, humanly speaking, come through Jacob's line, just like he came through the line of his father Abraham and Isaac, that God is going to redeem and restore and fix all the things that have been broken uh, in the curse. And so, this this promise that we are tracing through Genesis, and this is I know this point's been made before in this series, but this promise is a promise about Christ and his redemption and him coming into the world to establish his kingdom. And Jacob is ultimately justified before God because of Christ the same way that we are. Um, you know, it's because that God is looking in time and he sees that one day that Jesus is coming that he graciously justifies Jacob on the basis of Christ's work and his grace and not because of of the works that Jacob performed. I think it's important to note here that that God's blessing of Jacob is not because Jacob swindled the blessing, right? It's not as though God is caught in some kind of contractual loophole where he's like, well, and I was going to work through Esau, but you tricked me, so I guess I'm stuck with you, right? It's not because of what Isaac had done or what he had said. The blessing is effective because it's coming from the Father. We see really here this blessing where God is the one who is telling Jacob that you're the one through whom the seed's going to pass. This is really the, the where the blessing comes, right? Uh, it's not as though Isaac had some kind of spiritual mojo to make this happen. I mean, Isaac didn't even want to bless Jacob, right? He's, he's tricked into this. So it's not because... Uh, and, and it's the same with us, right? It's not because of our family. It's not because of our church. It's not because of who we're related to or who we know. God rescues us based on Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we see here, that, that God is looking at Jacob and he's saying, because one day Christ will come and he will die on that cross. I'm looking back in time and you're justified in Christ, not because of what you've done, right? Jacob's not even being obedient, but because of what I've done, Right. So, so we see that God makes some pretty big promises to Jacob. Not only does he say that in Jacob, that the blessing is going to continue to flow through whom the redemption of the nations is going to come, but he also tells Jacob that he's going to care for Jacob wherever he goes, right? He says, wherever you go, I will watch you and I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Right, That had got to be a comforting promise in the midst of Jacob's circumstances. He might have been wondering, you know, am I, am I even going to make it to my, to my father's or my family's household here? I'm out here in the, you know, this, this wilderness place sleeping by a rock. And God's saying, I'm with you. Wherever you go, I'm with you. Whatever you do, I'm with you. And I'm going to bring you back here. I'm going to bring you back to this place. And you are going to accomplish my purpose in your life. There's no way that Jacob can screw this up right? And praise be to God for that, right? Because um, if we think about it, if we think about it, right? Um, and and I'm, I'm going to speak kind of foolishly, humanly here, just to make the point. Um, if something were to happen to Jacob, then that would cut off the messianic line, 
and that would cut off God's ability to rescue the world. It's not as though God's about to put the redemption of all of humanity in Jacob's hands, right? It's not as though he's depending on Jacob to come through so that he could rescue the rest of us. Um, thank God for that, right? So, uh, so what he is saying is, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, right, no matter how far you run, I'm going to make sure that you're okay, and I'm going to bring you back here, and I'm not going to leave you until I've accomplished the purpose that I've called for you. And I think that's true for us as well. We may not have as clear an idea of what that looks like in our life as maybe Jacob was given here, but until God is ready to finish the purpose that he has birthed in us, there's nothing that, there's nothing we can do. There's nowhere we can go where he's not going to be there with us, walking beside us until he's accomplished that purpose, right? We can't screw it up uh, any more than Jacob could. In spite of our sin and our frailty, God is the one who's going to ensure that he works out his purposes in and through us. So we see that God makes these huge promises to Jacob. And then we finally see Jacob's response to God. So it says uh, that when he woke up, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early in the morning, he took the stone that was near his head, and he set it up as a marker and poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel. And then Jacob makes a vow, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up will be a marker for God's house, and I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. So we do see that Jacob, uh, he has several parts of his response, I think, that are really interesting. And again, all of these things really just point me to myself. It points to my own heart because I respond to God in some similar ways. So the first thing we see in, in Jacob's response is Jacob says, God was in this place, and I did not know it, Right? Um, and I, and I think that's a, a beautiful truth and it's often true in my heart. How often do I not know that God is there, that he's at work, right? That I'm blinded to see his presence. Um, and so Jacob is astonished. He's like, God was here. You know, I just thought it was just a rock. I was just going to slay down, you know, lay down and go to sleep. There's nothing, there's no church, there's no shrine, there's no temple. There's nothing that would have physically indicated the presence of the Lord. And yet the Lord was there with him in the midst of his difficulty, in the midst of his status as a fugitive. God was there and at work. Um, Alan Ross, one of the commentators uh, that, that I read in the book of Genesis here, said that God transformed a rock into an altar, a fugitive into a pilgrim, and a place into Bethel, which means the house of God. So we see that he recognizes God's work and God's presence, uh, although formally he had not been aware of it. Um, the second thing that we see is that Jacob... Um, he he anoints this this rock with some oil, and this is intended to be an act of worship, right? Um, we see oil is often used across uh, the Old Testament to the New Testament as a way to to sanctify a place and to um, to make an offering. And so so we do see that that Jacob responds to this vision of God and worship, and we know that that is the pattern across Scripture that God reveals Himself. And we respond in worship, and God shows us himself to us, and we respond in worship. And this pattern just repeats again and again. And so, like I said, I think this is the moment. This is, I, I'm pretty comfortable saying this. There might be others who disagree, but I think this is the moment where Jacob gets saved, right? That God has graciously come in, plucked him out, said, you're mine. You're working on my purpose. And, and just like Jacob, you know, we, we are all find ourselves in this situation, and all we can do is worship, right? To, to thank the Lord for his rescue of us. 
And so we see that he, he does offer some oil on this rock and he sets it up uh, to acknowledge the work that God has done in his life. But the other thing that I think is interesting that we find here in this passage, and this also, I think, speaks to my heart, is that Jacob's worship is imperfect, right? Uh, he, he does anoint uh, this rock with some oil. He does, um, you know, continue on his journey. But he also wants to make a deal with God, right? And, and what's astonishing to me, and, and what well, I say it's astonishing, it's not really, because I do the exact same thing, right? But God shows up, and he just told Jacob in a vision, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. You're going to accompli- I'm going to accomplish my purposes in you. And then Jacob says, well, if, if you don't leave me, if you take care of me, if you bring me back, then I will give you a tithe and, and you'll be my God. As if, you know, God hadn't just showed up and promised him all those things and more besides, right? And, and yet, that's my heart sometimes, right? I can see what the scriptures promise. I can see what the text says. I can see God show up and, and speak grace and truth and life and yet still have an imperfect response, have an imperfect heart that's like, I don't know, God, that sounds too good to be true, you know, or maybe that's true for someone else, but is that true for me? And, and we see that in Jacob's heart. And I think it's important to recognize that although God justifies us in an instant, in a moment in time, he, he moves us from death into life, sanctification is the work of a lifetime. And Jacob's got a long way to go. He's not there yet. So I do think that, that at this moment, Jacob is genuinely saved. He is now the father's child. He's been adopted into the family. But he's still got some rough edges that God's going to be working on him with for the rest of his life. And the same thing is true with us. And we'll see... As the text goes on, how Jacob matures, we'll see him continue to grow in faith and obedience. Uh, he's going to have some other mistakes he makes along the way, right? But this is the beginning of that story uh, of redemption in Jacob's life. In fact, uh, what's interesting is he makes up this memorial here at Bethel, and he, and he says, I'm going to come back here. Uh, but it's going to be 20 years before he comes back, right? I mean, it's easy sometimes for us when we're reading through the text to just kind of jump over those details. Um, it's, 20 years is a long time. Right, um, Jacob had to go, and he had to he had to work through some things, and God will eventually show up in another vision and bring Jacob back here to Bethel to accomplish his purpose. So we see that that Jacob worships, but we also see that his worship was imperfect. So, a couple of applications. Really, the the cool thing about the text today is this really is a text mostly about what God does for us. There's, you know, it's really all about Jesus showing up and doing things in us and through us and for us not really about what we bring to the table. But I think there's still some things that we can apply from this text in our own life. Um, And I've already kind of alluded to this, but I think that we're a lot more like Jacob maybe than we're comfortable to admit. I think one of the ways that we can respond to a text like this, and I hope this this speaks some hope or some life uh, to someone, is that God can love you and redeem you and use you no matter where you're at. Uh, No matter where you've gone, no matter what you've done, um, God is not limited in his ability to save, right? I mean, Jacob here was a fugitive who was running for his life, uh, and yet God still took him and used him in spite of himself. And so we can fight uh, one of the consequences of being in a broken world and being rebellious people is that we can be afflicted with uh, accusation and despair. In fact, one of the terms for 
for our enemy is Satan, which means the accuser, right? And so we can fight that accusation and that despair that sometimes comes our way by reminding ourselves that in Christ, no matter where we've gone or what we've done, that God is never too weak to save his people or too weak to not be able to use his people in spite of our mistakes, in spite of our past. I think a second application is to remember that just because we don't see God, that doesn't mean that he's not at work. Um, you know, how often are we oblivious uh, to, to the presence of God? And he is yet in our midst, and he is doing work in places where we don't look for him uh, or where we don't see him. I think that one of the ways that we can grow in that is that we can pray that the Lord would give us spiritual sight, that as we grow in faith, as we grow in um, looking at, at Christ and his word, that we'll have eyes to see him and see his work in the hearts of people and in, in situations around us. But even if that's not where we find ourselves in a moment, uh, even if we don't seem to see God, that doesn't mean he's not there. And sometimes I think we get accused of that. I get accused of that, wondering where's God at in this situation? Where's God at in this difficulty? And just because I might not see it or understand it doesn't mean that God's not present and he's not working all things for his glory and for the good of his people. Kind of a, this is kind of a, a second application that I call it to be. Um, but God works on his own timeline. Um, you know, here we see that, that Jacob, it's going to be 20 years before he comes back. And honestly, when we get into the, the text next week, it doesn't look like Jacob is a whole lot different on the outside than he was before this encounter with God. You know, he's going to go to his, his uncle and, and start scheming to try to get some wives. And then he starts scheming to try to, to get some property. And it's going to, it's going to be a while before we see Jacob start coming back and acting uh, more in, in a time of faith. And, and sometimes, you know, we can get impatient with God's promises. Uh, we get impatient with the timeline. God works on his own timetable, uh, not on ours, right? And so he gives us big promises. Sometimes it might be a while before we see those get fulfilled. And there's different ways we can have impatience. Maybe, maybe we can be impatient about receiving healing in our own brokenness, right? Maybe you're looking at some part of your life. I know I do this with my life. I look at my own heart and, and I get frustrated because there's stuff that's broke. And I'm just like, man, I just want it to get better, right? I just, I want to get past that sin. I want to get past this issue. I want to, I want to stop having to wrestle with this or that or the other. And I know that God is coming one day and he's going to heal all things and restore all things, renew all things. But I can get, I can get frustrated because I want some of that now, right? Uh, maybe that can be a physical ailment. Maybe that's some other difficulty we find ourselves in and we're just impatient. God, just show up and just fix it, right? We're, we can get impatient with waiting on the Lord for that. Sometimes we can be impatient maybe in seeing the fruit of our ministry. Um, that we're out and we're, and we're trying to share Jesus in, in our domains. We're trying to engage in the various opportunities the church provides. And, and it seems like we plow and we plow and we plow. And it just doesn't seem like anything maybe is happening in the hearts of people, right? I mean, if, if uh, I were preaching to Jacob here and I was just kind of observing his life, I'd probably be kind of discouraged because, again, there doesn't seem to be a kind of a big, big transformation from one day to the next in Jacob's life. It doesn't seem like there's a lot going on. But yet God is still accomplishing things in the hearts of people. You know, one of the things I thought was interesting, C.S. Lewis once used an analogy that when you look at the lives of those whom are called to, to be with God in eternity versus those who are in rebellion, that think of it as, as like a line that's extending to infinity, right? And the time that we see on earth is just a really, really short part of that line. So it might be that right now on earth, there doesn't seem sometimes to be that big of a difference between those who are called and those who are not. But if you extend that out forever, 
then there's an eternal world of difference between the two, right? So maybe it might seem, maybe there's someone in your life, maybe there's someone that you've been sharing the gospel with, or maybe there's someone you're trying to disciple, or whatever the case may be, and it might seem like there's not a whole lot of progress on that front, but just trust that the Lord is still there and he's at work, and in eternity we'll see that there was fruit, that there was a difference that was made. Maybe sometimes we're impatient about seeing God's justice accomplished, right? We just, I mean, I look at the world around us and it just seems like we go from bad to worse. And you, know, you think, how much worse can it get? And then you read the news and you're like, well, that much worse it can get, right? And we just want God to just be like, come on, just stop, just show up, just stop all the wickedness, stop all the, the rebellion, right? So whatever the case is, we have to remember, and these passages remind us, God works on his own timetable and he's there and he's getting it done. And he's getting it done in his own time. And, and our job is to trust and obey and keep walking moment by moment in faith until the work is accomplished. I think a third application is it would be a good idea, like Jacob, to set up some periodic memorials in our life to the work of God. He took this stone where he slept and he set it up as an altar and said, this is Bethel, right? This is, this is the house of God. Uh, to remind ourselves that we can look back at these moments where we've encountered God and to remind and refresh our spirits that he was present, he was at work, and to call on those promises. I know at the beginning of this year, I know this was another sermon, but we were given some journals here from the church. That might be a good way of doing this, to be able to record the work of the Lord in our life or what he's saying, and then to go back from time to time and look at that. We need, as people, these these physical reminders, these tangible reminders of where we've encountered God to encourage us in obedience sometimes. That's a good idea. Um, and then finally, I think that we should respond to all of this, uh, as Jacob did with worship. You know, because of Christ, uh, Bethel is everywhere, right? Um, the house of God is everywhere. There's not some coordinates on a map that we have to go to. It's not like we have to get on a plane and fly to Israel to find the house of God, right? God dwells with his people. Jesus dwells amongst us. So wherever we're at, wherever we go, Jesus is there. And in light of what he has done for us, uh, we can worship the Lord. And don't worry uh, about whether that's perfect or not, right? Uh, Jacob did not worship perfectly. I'm not, I don't worship perfectly. Uh, but wherever we're at, let's worship. Let's give thanks to the Father for what he's done. Let's Let's be inspired by his grace to repent. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And then to be encouraged to be on mission, right? So that's what we're going to do now. Um, I'm going to pray for you guys as the band comes up uh, to lead us in song that we would respond well um, to the grace that God has revealed to us. Um, Father, thank you so much um, that you are a good God who rescues your people in spite of our sin, our rebellion, and our brokenness, that even when we aren't looking for you, you're looking for us. Um, thank you, God, that uh, you save us on the basis of Christ's blood and work and not based on um, any status that we bring to the table. Um, and God, I pray that you would move in my heart and the hearts of your people to respond with worship and with praise and adoration that you would cause uh, maybe uh, for those who might not know you yet, for their heart to come to life, uh, for those who do know you, that you would help us to be encouraged, that you would help us to repent, and that you would help us to go forth on mission. And so, God, would you please do that in us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name.